Hello and welcome to Function. I'm your host, Anil Dash. And in this episode of Function, we are going to change things up a little bit and have a roundtable. This time around, we are going to get into observing the 20th anniversary of the birth of the modern era of social media. We're talking to some of the folks who helped create social media from its earliest days. You know, we were so young. So some of these issues, which now we look back and think, well, of course we had a hard time with that. Of course we made mistakes. What are you going to expect? You're 20 years old. Um, but at the time, just seemed so big and daunting. That was really striking to me, just that people were doing these major things like publishing books. And they had done a lot of writing on Diaryland as well. It's easy to look at Twitter and look at Facebook and look at the things that are happening and how awful people are to each other and say, the world would be better off without the internet. <laughs> and I don't believe that. I think I think there's still space for there to be uh, places where people can be good to each other. Think about sites like LiveJournal, Blogger, and Diaryland. If you're around on the internet back then, you'll remember them. But for newer folks, most of us, they are the ones that defined the behaviors that all of us do every day, sharing little bits of text or little photos with your friends or maybe with strangers and having a way to connect with each other. That was something that had to be invented, created. And we're going to talk to some of the people who did exactly that. I talked to Bruce Abelson. I'm currently working in digital strategy in community and social software. In 1998, I built and launched Open Diary, which was the original kind of blogging community. And we talked with Lisa Phillips. Today, I'm working on data privacy for Fastly, an infrastructure edge cloud company. In 1999, I started working as a Unix systems administrator for a newspaper and a couple of years later joined LiveJournal.com as their first systems administrator and worked there for many years uh, scaling that site. And we got a chance to talk to Andrew Smales of Diaryland and Petus. I'm a freelance software consultant in 1999. I created uh, Petus.com and Diaryland.com, which were early blogging platforms. Now, I talked to these creators about the early days of blogging and social media and journals online and about how what they did shaped the world of social media and then, of course, how that invention of social media shaped the world we live in today. If we go all the way back to you know 20 or 21 years ago and we look at the landscape of the web, how were people sharing their ideas, their thoughts, their feelings with strangers or with their friends and family as compared to today? So if we go back to 1998, it was a little hard how they were able to share things. And that was kind of what led me to do what I did. I was working as a contract programmer doing financial software and HR software, which was not exciting. <laughs> and uh, I ended up um, with some extra time during the workday and I started kind of just browsing around the web. Google had just, I think, launched at the beginning of that year, gone public at the beginning of that year. So kind of playing with search engines and found some people who were writing what were really web journals um, and got sucked into a couple of them that were just, you know, really interesting because they were sharing their personal stories. but And sort of a personal diary of their yeah. day, that kind of like what they had for lunch? Or yeah, what? like the first one that really sucked me in was a guy who had lived in Alabama. He was a young man and he had skipped town. Now this, you know, you never knew what was true and what wasn't, but it seemed legit. He had skipped town on, 
I think, a drunken driving charge or something and was living on a ranch in western U.S. somewhere under an assumed name and just writing about, like, here's my daily ranch life and what I'm going to do. And it was a really fascinating story. But, you know, to get back to the question of sharing, there was no real easy way to discover that content then. You could start using search engines and say, you know, show me a journal or a daily diary and you might get one of these things, but you wouldn't get a bunch of them. And there was no kind of interaction between them. You know, they were all kind of islands of people who knew how to write HTML and put up a web page, which was kind of the challenge. So you have this person that's sharing his personal diary of being on the run. Yeah. And, um, and, and what was his, what was the process like? And I'll, I'll sort of ask each of you this. What was the process like before these tools popped up if I wanted to tell my story of my, you know, either my criminal escapades or what I had for <laughs> lunch or whatever it was? Yeah. I mean, you, you had to be able to set up a web page. Like you had to know how to get server space and how to write HTML enough to put a page together and, you know, know a little bit about putting graphics in a page and that kind of stuff. And that – was one of the reasons I started doing what I was doing because I felt like there was something there for a larger audience of people if we could only make it easy and easy to find and easy to do. Right. Andrew, what about you? What was your experience of what, what the tools were like to try and create a web page or to create a diary? I was uh, writing some stuff in probably 97 or 98 from a tech support job I had where I worked overnight and I would write very long piece of writing every night because there was nothing to do. And, uh, it, you know, it struck me how annoying it was to just keep uploading stuff, doing these text files. I guess a little later in 98, I started working for DreamHost, um, a big hosting company, or not as big at the time. They ran a guestbook service, DreamBook. Um, and I guess that sort of gave me the little bit of inspiration of, oh, I could actually do this kind of thing. I was talking to the founders of that company all the time because uh, there's only a couple of employees. And I realized, um, you know, I could automate what I was doing if I just learned some programming. And then at some point I started doing what was more of a, I guess you would call a link blog now. And I wrote a script to uh, just make it much easier for me to add, you know, 10 or 20 links a day. I was just literally just putting in every single link that I, or every single web page that I went to any day. And it was just kind of to be stupid or whatever. Um, and then I realized, you know, that would scale. I, I could easily just add a function so other people could do the same thing. So you're, it seems like one of the catalysts was the guest books that were on DreamHost and, and other sites had them too. And they were something like a, maybe a very early version of a Facebook wall or something like that that people might know today, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. It was just uh, essentially a message board or something or like you said, a Facebook wall. With no, but there was no real discussion going on. It wasn't threaded. It was just sort of, hey, I visited your page. It's like if everybody's Facebook wall posts were like, hey, I went to your Facebook profile. I was here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's interesting because because you came out of you know this interaction with a company that was hosting web pages, but they were sort of providing raw materials, but not the tools to go all the way into publishing something. And Lisa, you were sort of having a similar background where you were working with a web hosting company and, and, and these companies that were providing the ability for people to put pages online, providing infrastructure, but there was not there was no way to just click and start typing, right? No, you had to build it yourself. I, I definitely had to do the same thing. Um, but I actually wanted to mention for a moment some of the, t- the non-web tools that I used for connection and for community, primarily back then IRC, 
um, and then, you know, some of the other chat services later. But with IRC, which I think of today more like what, how we use Slack, you know, I could go and find a channel that was a topic that I was really interested and I could make connections that way. And then I could also go online and read, you know, static HTML sites, write my own posts. But what was missing was that sense of building a community through it. It was like I was just talking out there into the world, hoping, you know, someone would be able to find it, but not really getting that sort of satisfaction of a of a like or a fave or a comment or anything like that, that I really loved out of using the early chat programs. Mm-hmm. So there was an immediacy and a sort of human sense there. And even there were there's, there's IRC, which, as you said, was, was sort of a maybe a, a proto Slack style chat. There were uh, Usenet news groups, which are sort of discussion groups. And, and people today might have a similar experience in a, in a Facebook group or a uh, you know, the group group chat or something like that. So there were tools that had a sense of community, but the web wasn't one of them. Exactly. And what led you to finding LiveJournal? So in 1999, Brad Fitzpatrick had created LiveJournal. Uh, and, you know, I know I, from talking to him, he was had seen things like uh, PETAs and, and, and Open Diary, but, but felt journaling was slightly different. So, you know, everybody sort of has their own lens on that. Lisa, how did you come to find LiveJournal? The funny thing is I I had a diary land first. That was my first online diary. Your true loyalty. <laughs> nice. And I was working at an ISP and, you know, separately kind of keeping this online diary. And when as Live Journal was created and it was started in Seattle, which is where I was working at the time, there were just these pockets of communities there using it, you know, from college. And um I was working at this ISP called Speakeasy back then and wanted to make more friends, wanted to meet more people and found out everybody was using LiveJournal there. And so I got to learn more about my coworkers and sort of start participating with LiveJournal um, by having one. Sort of we were all at work, you know, sitting at our in our open office, not talking to each other. And yet online, we were all constantly on LiveJournal all day. And that sort of predates the Slack model as well, right? Totally. But that's how we all, you know, people who are not on LiveJournal would ask me kind of like, how do you know what's going on? How do you know the gossip? Oh, you got to read LiveJournal. Everybody's on there. In our private communities, though, you know, that was another big deal is that you could choose on LiveJournal to have it be only your small community of friends. It wasn't all public, which I think a lot of the things before then were pretty public. Let's talk a little bit about timeline. When did Open Diary launch to the public? October 20th, 1998. Rough was when, yeah, <laughs> was when it went online, about 7 p.m. Eastern. Right. And then Andrew, uh, Diaryland and PETAS, well, PETAS was first, was, was not too much later in 99, right? Yeah. PETAS was first. I think Diaryland was, I don't know, probably five months later, something like that. Yeah. To my recollection, I think, I think uh, PETAS was in the springtime of 99 and, and then- Diaryland and, was like August, September, October, something right, around yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think it was August or so. And then- um, Blogger.com uh, launched in September of 99. Yep. So what we have is, you know, in the span of a year, uh, these three, four, five sites come online. And there were maybe one or two others, but these were certainly the dominant ones across, you know, I guess, I don't know what we'd later maybe be called the blogosphere or whatever it was. But part of it was blogs and diaries and journals were all seen as very different things. Like Bruce, what was your yep. perception of a blog? Well, initially called a weblog. Yeah. Exactly. So in, you know, in 98, when we first launched, a weblog was kind of very similar to what Andrew was describing. Like it would be somebody who was maybe posting links or posting uh, information about like what were they doing at their job or things like that. 
um, you know, the the idea of like actual journalist blogs was still a long ways off then. So you can't really compare them to blogs today. To whereas when we thought about a diary or a journal, that was a regular person talking about their regular life and what are their everyday experiences. Uh, and then when you added in the interaction with, the, you know, what Lisa was pointing out, we saw the same thing. As people started to interact with each other, it became this whole huger, more amazing thing than just people posting their personal journals. And like one of the key differences we saw between live journal and open diary was what Lisa described with live journal where groups of people who knew each other would use it, sort of like how Facebook is now, was much more prevalent on there than open diary. Open diary tended to be more people were posting their um, you know personal things that they didn't want to put somewhere else and didn't necessarily invite their friends and family to come in. Back then, your friends and family weren't necessarily online. They didn't have a, a modem. So. Right, right, right. <laughs> And, and Lisa, I'm curious for you whether that sort of mirrors your experience. Yeah, I was actually just thinking as I was remembering my Diaryland account. Um, I maintained that account even as I started using LiveJournal and created, you know, became part of that whole community because my Diaryland account was actually sort of more like a diary, like literally talking about my inner feelings and desires and sort of how I interacted with the world in a certain way that was not how I projected or what I talked about on LiveJournal because I still was talking to my community and my friends. And so Diaryland, I actually kept as a sort of private diary. Now, if somebody happened to read it or was totally anonymous on there, that would be fine. But I I maintained that for quite a while. I had both uh, because I did see the distinction there. Andrew, PETAS was almost pointedly not about weblogs. It was about PETAS about diaries, right? I would say the main thing with PETAs that differentiated it from Diaryland was just that PETAs was multiple posts on one page that I would say was more like the weblog format, whereas Diaryland was just, uh, to begin with anyway, was just one post per page, which, I mean, at the time there were a lot of people doing you know, online diaries. And I was sort of aware of those people like doing, you know, with HTML and everything. But PETAs was something I just sort of threw up in the meantime while I was kind of working on Diaryland just to do that weblog format. So, yeah, I would say it was more actually of the weblog format. Oh, that's interesting because it feels like, well, maybe this is more of a Diaryland thing. There was almost a tension between these communities, like diaries were one thing and blogs were another and 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 you sort of picked one camp that you were in or or different sides of your persona were expressed through different tools, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there was quite a division back then. That, I mean, that was the whole reason that I started two different sites. And then um, I guess when bloggers started getting big, they to me always it seemed like they kind of made the conscious decision of let's call it a blog and kind of get everybody onto our thing, you know, and kind of meld it. Maybe it was, I mean, I don't know if they actually were the ones that caused everything to kind of meld or whether it was going that way anyway. But I felt like people who used, you know, Blogger and Blogspot were more, um, there wasn't that division. For me, when I think about that and how I use those platforms and then I saw Blogger and what I saw as a distinction with weblogs was that because of the sort of private nature of diaries or journals, a lot of people didn't use their real identities. They didn't use their real names and their usernames. I mean, in general, in the internet back then, you weren't necessarily coming forth with your real name. You weren't 
um, presenting as the person that you were in real life. You were presenting as the persona that you had in your diary or in your journal. And I, you know, that's, that was true for blogs as well. But that is, in my mind, that's when I think of starting to see blogs associated more with real writers, real journalists, real people um, who are representing themselves online as the way that they repre- that they moved through the real world. And to me, that was a big change from the sort of di- diary and journals to blogs and to what we see today. So the standard might have been uh, you're either anonymous or you used your your online hacker handle or your AOL screen name or whatever it was, or you were you were Neo from the Matrix, like you had a very different <laughs> persona. Yeah. Was that was that the convention on Open Diary? Uh, we actually required users to be anonymous in the beginning. Like our rules were very specific that you could not post your personal information. Um, and we considered that important for safety because of what people were writing about. So that lasted for a few years. Obviously, it's not like that anymore. You know, you post under your real name if you want to. Um, But Lisa makes a really good distinction. Like the distinction to me between blogs then and today are blogs are usually people who are writing for an audience or to get their opinion out about something. you know, it's what happens on Medium. It's what happens on a lot of different tools now versus somebody who's writing for themselves maybe to get interaction with a community that they don't necessarily want to share, you know, their absolute identity with. So if you were writing that, like, think piece that we have today and you're going to put your name on it and I want to be the thought leader on this idea and you were to do that on one of these platforms back around the turn of the century, what would the reaction be? What would the response be? That's a good question. I don't – there wasn't – it wasn't a distribution mechanism for think pieces. That was the thing. Like, you couldn't make a name for yourself. Yeah. No, you couldn't make a name for yourself because you were, weren't using your real name. And I posted things and I still do. I will write things that I think of as think pieces. But I'm doing it more to say here's what I actually believe in and here's my you know manifesto <laughs> that I'm putting out. And um, you know if somebody figures out that it's my writing, that's fine. But uh, I'm not doing it to promote myself. If I wanted to promote myself, I'd go you know on Medium or on Twitter or on you know somewhere else. Other channels. Hook to my real name. Andrew, when you had people that, that had diaries that started to get popular or PETAs that started to get popular, what did that look like? How did people respond to it? How did you know something was catching on? You would just see the interaction between people on the site. And, you you know, you go to one diary, they'd be talking to other people, mentioning them. There are a few cases early on that were really big. Um, one of the biggest or most popular users on the site, he started a second account called Brad Pitt. And it was sort of a, just satirical. Like it was pretending to be Brad Pitt in a very over-the-top way. It was very odd. And then it became the uh, the top Google result for if you search for Brad Pitt. Um, and then that that seemed like a big thing, like that was getting a lot of people. And then uh, Brad Pitt's lawyer and Jennifer Aniston at the time's lawyers um, made them shut it down. But it was just stuff like that. There'd be the odd thing where suddenly some page was getting, you know, 5,000 people a day or something. As all the coverage of blogs grew, you know, and maybe I guess 2000, 2001, something like that, you know, there was a very obvious traffic boost. I had to get more powerful servers, stuff like that. And these days, somebody like that would probably just make like a fake Brad Pitt Twitter account, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It was, I think at that time, that was something people weren't used to, that kind of parody. And now it's, you know, commonplace. 
Right, because Wikipedia hadn't even really become a thing yet. I mean, I think it existed, but it hadn't taken off. So the idea of like you're editing it yourself or there could be information you're putting out there and you don't know if it's reliable or not was, was pretty new. Yeah, and there was a big period in 2000, 2001, and two where there was a lot of press coverage where people were like, blogging is this new thing. Hey, are these people crazy? Like, why are they writing about themselves online? We got a lot of, really a lot of great press from that and a lot of um, technology writers saying, you know, here's something really interesting that's happening with technology that's being done with it, that's giving people a voice. So that was cool. We got a lot of traffic off of that. Was Lisa, was that some of that, some of that attention why you decided to start working on a platform like LiveJournal? Or like when, when was the switch over for you where you thought, okay, this is interesting enough that I want to be part of it? Well, I, I knew Brad Fitzpatrick, who started LiveJournal. Um, when I met him, which I think was in 99 or 2000, um, he needed some server space because LiveJournal was growing bigger than the, the his closet or wherever he had it at the time in his dorm room. So I said, hey, this is really cool. Um, yeah, go ahead. Put it. You can come put it in our in our colo space uh, for this ISP I was at. So that's kind of how we started talking with each other. And, you know, we all used it at this company. So we thought, well, you should come. We'll just host it for free. It'll be fine. So that's kind of how we. I started getting involved with it. And um, he couldn't keep up with the growth, just like you guys are saying, all of a sudden things started growing exponentially. More people were getting online and feeling comfortable sharing. Um, LiveJournal actually had quite a few impersonation kind of, you know, accounts, kind of what you're talking about. But there would be whole communities of it where you would just be online in a character interacting with each other, right? And then the fandom community as well. So When uh, did you know it was going to be huge? Like what was the thing where it just blew up and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be everywhere? He uh, told me, I said, how much bandwidth do you need? And he gave me um, the numbers in terms of like the total amount of traffic transferred in a month and didn't really know much about throughput at the time. Um, The idea of bandwidth where, you know, if you exceed a certain amount in your pipe at any given second, you're going to be over capacity. And the second he moved in and we gave him what he thought he needed, he was over it. And I think that watching, that sounds silly, but even he wasn't able to sort of comprehend how large it was at the time in terms of the sort of the machine power and the bandwidth needs. And I feel like that was a story for a little while, which is we just could, we had a really hard time keeping up with the growth. Um, And so, you know, Watching that with Brad, eventually I said, you know, I I do this for this other company. It's not that interesting anymore. Can I come and do this for you? Can I come and scale LiveJournal? Because I think it is. I think it is big. I think for me, when I knew that it mattered was when I started talking with people that weren't in my day-to-day life, telling me how important the service was, how it was their lifeline, how it was something that um, kept them going, you know, if they were dealing with depression or they were dealing with having a hard time developing community wherever they were. When I started to get a sense that this matters more than as a plaything, as like a pastime, this matters in your day-to-day life. This is, you know, it's connecting you on on a deeper level. And so therefore, my job, which was to make sure this thing was available all the time, online um, started to matter on a, I guess, a deeper level for me. And I think that's that's sort of my realization of it being really powerful and important to people. Bruce, what were the stories that people told you? Yeah, well, I think we probably all of us had similar experiences to that, right, where you found out that people were um, using the site as a community because they couldn't find support elsewhere. And that, you know, we would get emails every day. We would have emails from people who were saying, 
you know, thank you so much because I've been looking for a place where people would listen to me. We would get emails from people who had been, you know, considering suicide or considering, um, you know, other terrible things and saying, you know, I found people to interact with here and that I could talk to and they understood me. And um, we built a community there. And that really, you know, out of all of it, that was the one thing that looking back, you can say, feel like we made a difference. We did something that people hadn't seen before and we built a place where people could interact and get support. We had a lot of people who, you know, were dealing with any number of challenges in their lives. And, you know, it's 20 years ago. It's hard to think about how long ago 20 years ago is, but people who were in um, communities that were, uh, you know, minimalized by society. So people who were LGBTQ then or people who were um, living, um, you know, below the poverty line or, you know, there were any number of uh, kinds of communities that didn't have a voice then. And they found places like this and found that they could have a voice and that people would interact with them. I think one of the main powers of sites like this was that you would come on and you would interact and read these people's stories without knowing anything about them. I don't know what your race is or your religion is or what your beliefs are. And I start reading your journal or your diary and realize that you're a person. You're a person just like me. Uh, and that's like that's one of the things I think is missing in today's social life. That's why I think there's space still for things like Open Diary because people don't have that experience elsewhere. Andrew, what was the first time somebody thanked you for making Diaryland or making Petis? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I've got a terrible memory for stuff like that. What about blame? What was the first time somebody blamed you and said, you know, your, your site made my, you know, ruined my day? People would not email me, but every once in a while, somebody would um, ask me to say they uh, they lost their password to their site or something, and they changed their email. And so I'd go to their site to you know check it was them or whatever. And then their last entry would be from six months earlier, and they'd be like, "Andrew sucks. I hope he dies. This guy's terrible." And so I'd have to reply to them. I just reply to them like, "Okay, I've sent you a password reset email. Uh, go ahead, go ahead, go <laughs> ahead." You know. So not, not, I mean, not the really horrible stuff, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, for, for you, Bruce, it's sort of the same thing. What, 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 what were the things where somebody is like, you know, you did this to me by yeah. giving me this great site yeah. for free? Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of challenges. I mean, we, we were facing a lot of things that hadn't really been like, um, you know, litigated in the, in the online world before. There were free speech questions and there was, you know, we dealt with, is it okay for somebody to post a picture of them breastfeeding their baby? What's the line? Where do you draw that? And so we were, you know, I was just navigating that without any, there was no previous experience anywhere that anybody had had with that. And um, the free speech one was huge. Like we have very specific rules that you can't attack other members. You can't call them names. You can't say, you know, you can't say they're stupid because of their political or religious beliefs, whatever. Um, so there was a lot, especially back then, of, oh, you're infringing on my free speech. You're taking, you know, and people posting about the First Amendment and shouting and shouting and shouting and saying, and then saying, no, you are in my space, right? Not my space. But my <laughs> Our <laughs> space. <laughs> you're in my space now, so you have to follow my rules. And um, we did, there was a lot of that. Like people are, oh, you gave me this free tool and you connected me to all these people and now you've taken my free speech away. I mean, there's always this moment where I have to remember, you know, we were so young. So some of these issues, which now we look back and think, 
well, of course we had a hard time with that. Of course we made mistakes. What are you going to expect? You're 20 years old. Um, but at the time, just seemed so big and daunting. Um, but, you know, we, you know, we experimented with ads. Uh, that was – people were pretty vocal about that experience. Um, <laughs> vocally supportive, right? They were like, yay, great, ads. Yeah, we Love definitely – Love those pop-ups. You know, and, and again, it's – I have a different perspective just because I, you know, I was so involved with the performance and availability side of um, this service. But, you know, we – you know, when I think to going back to the question of knowing how big it was and the aha moment – the faster we can make the site, the larger the community grew, not just in terms of traffic, but the number of users. So we figured out pretty early on, if we can keep this thing clicky fast, that's what we would say. Um, you click, you get the thing, which back then was not necessarily guaranteed at all for sites online. It wasn't easy. But we figured, you know, we were like, wow, this is insane. I mean, it was, you know, visceral, like, I made this piece of the site faster and it grew to fill that space immediately. And then the community grew. So, there, you know, figuring out that there was this connection, that like people wanted this so much that as much as we could make available, they would take and they would grow. And so anything that we did, decisions, the ads were one of them. Um, you know, if we ever made, you know, had regressions after deploys, if we made decisions around our network or machine changes that caused the site to get slower for any reason, caused this great just horde of complainers because, you know, they're like, you showed me that this site was awesome and fast and you just took that away from me. Um, so that that was – that's one that I will never forget, which is as fast as I could work, people were still probably complaining that it wasn't fast enough. So we've talked a little bit about uh, sort of all these challenges of growing and scaling and 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 success problems, really. Andrew, I'll start with you. I'm curious about like people may not understand what was considered big back then. So as the site started to grow, how how many people were you talking about? How many diaries or or you know different sites we, were you hosting that 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 was considered a big scale back then? I mean, at the probably at the peak, I remember getting about. Um, and this was all due to sort of media attention. Like you'd get a few more, but probably at the peak, I was getting maybe 2,000, 2,500 new users a day. And, you know, these days that's not really considered too much uh, for, you know, a startup with a bunch of funding or whatever. Um, but that was, uh, yeah, really exciting back then. I think at probably had a few hundred thousand active users really posting all the time. Well, and nobody had been growing at that level of signing up 2,000 people. And you were doing, I assume, zero advertising of any kind. Oh, yeah. That's correct. Yes. And what, what did scaling look like on Open Diary? How, how fast was it growing when it was you know, first started to boom? Yeah. Well, when it first started, it actually started booming really fast. Like things – and we didn't have a marketing budget either. I mean yeah. I put the site online and um, I think two or three days in, like the second or third day, it was featured as a Netscape – dot com because Netscape had a portal then. It was a cool site of the day. And all Congratulations. This, oh yeah, I know. That was still, very that yeah. was a very <laughs> I wish I had a planner. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um but that one, you know, suddenly there was a bunch of traffic from that. And then uh we got picked up as a Yahoo cool site of the week mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. six weeks later. That's like the Oscars. And That's... that that was like exponential from Netscape.com cool site of the day. So um, we very quickly, by 99, we were registering like between ten and 20,000 people a day. Wow. Uh, and, I mean, in that that era, that was yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, on, on high days when there was right. a lot of publicity. 
Um, and, you know, over by the time we got to about 2004, we had registered about two and a half million accounts. Now, that's not to say they were all, you know, unique users, don't know, but they were all individual accounts. Um, so we had all the same problems, like scaling um, was, we were learning as we went. There weren't, you know, there weren't things that were that size. I launched the site, funny story, originally on a shared Microsoft Access database because I was like, I'm doing this as basically a proof of concept to see if it'll work. And I put it online. We're all physically cringing. Here. Yes, I know. It's the worst, it's the worst story ever. And um, I think I was about 36 hours in when I was like, okay, there's enough. And there were a few dozen people. And it was like, okay, we're moving to SQL Server because obviously this is never going to last. And then so that you know just became a constant sort of how do you add more capacity? How do you add... How do you, you know, build better technology, whatever. But it, a lot of it was, and I think we all had the same thing. It was like, it was things that hadn't happened before. It was scaling before scale was a thing. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come back with more of our conversation with Lisa, Bruce, and Andrew. What if all your breaking news alerts had a voice? What would that sound like? It would sound like Today Explained. It's a daily news podcast from Vox. I'm Sean Ramos for him. Every day, my team and I take one essential news story, politics, Me Too, movies, sports, science, and we break it down into 20-minute episodes perfect for your ride home. Subscribe to Today Explained on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen from Stitcher and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Welcome back to Function. I'm Anil Dash. We are in the midst of an amazing roundtable with some of the folks that created the earliest forms of social media back in 1999. We're going to jump right back into it now. So there's this Wild West where you're all building these large sites and thousands of people are signing up every day, uh, which is extraordinary. And there's no marketing infrastructure. There, back then, there's no Google AdWords. So you can't just slap ads on it. Uh, you didn't have enough people to be selling ads on your own. And also everything was much more expensive. You couldn't just go to Amazon and say, give me some web services. I'd like to run a big site. So what do you do when that bill comes due for this server that you're suddenly paying for or this database that you're suddenly paying for? It's scary. I mean, it is scary. And and it was way more expensive then. We were lucky. We ended up co-locating in Atlanta and there was a bunch of – uh, bandwidth available and server space available in Atlanta that had been built for the Olympics and was left over because Atlanta had assumed they were going to have this tech mecca and all these companies were going to come and they were going to be the hub of the internet after the Olympics. And suddenly there was all this empty capacity. So for a couple years, we got pretty good discounts on that, but that didn't last. And it's like, you know, the a- AWS bills today it's are... AWS is Amazon Web yeah, Services. sorry, Amazon Web Services bills today are, are fractions of what we were paying for then for way less capacity. So it's it's a lot easier, I think, to do this kind of thing now for a lot of reasons, but that's a big one. And Lisa, what about you? Did, was there a moment where you all were looking on the live drill team, looking around and saying, oh my gosh, how are we going to pay for all this? That was every day. <laughs> I mean, I, I was the cloud personally. I worked 24 hours a day and I was at the data center constantly and you know, we tried to to utilize different things like, you know, CDN, Akamai was started back then and, um, you know, load balancers and stuff like that. But the cost of equipment, the cost of hardware, and it always came with these big support contracts that you didn't really want to use and you didn't really want to talk to the salespeople. I mean, it was a totally different time 
um, with this assumption that you had money, and we we only had the money that you know our users would pay us, and so that's where. You know, for us, that's where some of the open source technologies like Memcached came out of. I mean, that was literally Memcached was we cannot afford to scale、um, database performance with the money that we have in front of us. So we have to figure out another way to do it.、Um, so so talk a little bit about that, which is which is that you needed a, a database to be able to handle all the users that you had.、Uh, yeah. The solutions that were out there were what, like millions of dollars? They were so yeah, millions of dollars. I mean, and it was only、yeah. with the big vendors. And then, so you say we're going to cobble together our own system to run a really big database? That's basically yeah, <laughs> yeah, basic or or something that、um, doesn't require us to scale, like keep throwing money at、um, storage because it's it's way too expensive. The hardware is too expensive, and then just the whole infrastructure around it was too expensive. We definitely went through some trials of, of weird stuff. Um, using like、uh, the I don't remember what they're called now, but there was like the Apple external storage devices back then. We were like, what if we chained a bunch of those together in the data center? <laughs> they're not even rack mounted or anything.、Um, they were <laughs> we probably were very stylish. So Apple they... <laughs> selling you hard drives that look beautiful and you can't yeah, use exactly. Just firewire them together. They'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and yeah, we just we just knew, and you know, again, going back to that, we knew that the community grew. If we were fast, and so anytime we were slow, people would go away, you know, or or people would be very mad,、um, to be honest. And、uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of where Memcache grew. As we thought, we've got to be able to figure out a way to utilize what we do paid for, and we knew that we paid for memory that goes in machines,、uh, and it was sitting there mostly unused. And so we thought, well, we've got all this memory all over the data center. Um, that we're not really using. We've got to we've got to get everything we can out of everything we're paying for right now,、um, because anything that's sitting there unused, CPU, memory, storage is waste is is a waste for us that we can't afford. Right. So Memcache, that Lisa was talking about, is this open source technology you and Brad and others created together that was letting you grow a big social network and grow its big database of users and and be able to do it on you know really cheap hardware and pretty much free software. And that's still something that underpins a lot of the social networks today, right? That's my understanding. Yes. You don't want to take any blame for it. <laughs> yeah. Curious for you, <laughs>、uh, Andrew. I'm curious for you if you,、um, you you're at that point where it's starting to grow and starting to boom. You don't have millions of dollars in your pockets. Like, what were you duct taping together to make this thing still keep working? Um, one of the lucky things for me was that、uh, because I did orig- I worked at DreamHost and they were running their DreamBook. Um, guestbooks. I knew from that and being in really close contact with the people making that and running it that the database was sort of the pain point. So when I wrote my sites, I went out of my way while you know coding them so that there was as little database as possible, and you know ninety percent of the traffic maybe was hitting static pages when people are actually loading the web logs and diaries and stuff. So it didn't. That didn't eliminate any problem, you know, all the problems, but it made it so I could run it pretty reasonably with the money that was coming in from paid memberships, and it was never a huge problem. I mean, it was a little silly that I was、um, leasing all these co-located servers. Just I'm just a guy who lives in a basement apartment, and、um, you know, all this money's coming in and out and doing all this stuff, but it was never a real hassle. 
for me. Um, the um, um, the I, other thing I'd say, Neil, you know, on the topic of of not having a lot of money is, you know, we didn't get funding from outside, and we weren't sort of building consumer services, assuming the money would come later. You know, which I think is a really different experience than um, some of the sites later on. Which is, we knew everything we built. Somebody had to sort of agree to donate us. You know, that's that's how we started was just donations, um, and then later on, be willing to pay for the account because we weren't really getting supplemental income from anywhere else. So every feature we built, everything we invested in, had to have some value to a person that was a dollar that they would give us. And I think that was a very different experience than what you saw later with other sites. Yeah, you couldn't just put Google Ads on it, and there wasn't, uh, you know, some sort of easy, you know, Apple Pay or something like that. And uh, and also at that time, people weren't doing startups that were these things either, right? Because you couldn't, no, nobody would invest in a bunch of people publishing their diaries online, right? Yeah, it was a different world. That was crazy. And there were ad networks. I mean, but they were not easy, and they didn't work well. And they mailed you a check once a once a month, and uh, so it was a whole different thing. I mean, we ran we ran on ad revenue um, for a couple of years before we added a subscription model, and it was crazy because CPMs went up and up and up up until CPMs the measure of how many dollars yeah per measure each. of how much you get um, per every thousand ads um, viewed, and um, those numbers went up and up and up for about a year and a half, and then two thousand two thousand one came. And it suddenly went to about three or four percent of what it wow. was before the bubble burst. So you lost like ninety-seven percent <laughs> yeah. of your revenue. Well, it was funny because I mean we had like literally about a month and a half where we had signed a contract with the company that used to be uh, about.com, and they were paying a fixed rate for advertising across sites that would sign up for their network, and it was this number that was exponentially larger than what we had been earning. But this was the way that it was then. People were signing for crazy amounts. And literally the next month, their lawyers called and they were like, we're voiding this contract because there's no, you know, the internet economy is collapsing and there's no way. (laughs) Um, So so this is so interesting because there's this sort of like, it's such a different environment economically. Uh, You have these networks that, you know, are at that point, the largest things anybody had seen, but but by today's standards, are you know uh, almost uh, a smaller a small site, right? So yeah. it's sort of a, a different different scale to it. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is uh, the evolution of the concepts we think of as a social network. So being able to follow somebody or friend somebody or even find somebody. Um, Andrew, maybe I'll start with you. What what kind of social features did you you know include in your sites, and which ones did you deliberately not build? Um, I included uh, buddy list features so you keep track of what people were, you know, you could essentially it's following people and it would tell you when they updated. I had features where you could sort of mark off, oh, these are my favorite um, diary posts that people added and whatnot. Um, I did steer somewhat clear of sort of location and stuff like that, which a lot of people were asking for. I did wind up adding a location search but it was – there's sort of like a lot of warnings before you would be listed in it so that nobody would sort of accidentally get listed or not understand uh, what was involved. And the, it also wasn't the most granular – you know, you couldn't actually search that small an area to find somebody. 
um, because there's a lot more worries about sort of stalkers and some, you know, stuff like that in those days. Yeah, that was the concern then. What about privacy? Could you could you make your uh, diary private? We had a couple of levels of privacy with one being you could just lock the entire diary. So if, if it had been public, you could just, you know, at any moment, just set it to be locked. And then there was always, an, for each post you added, there was a little checkbox if you wanted that one just to be private. And if you did, you could set up different passwords for your friends and let them view it, or you could just have it for yourself, which was what a lot of people did. When we started, um, those things all evolved very quickly at the beginning of the site, because when we started, you posted and everything was public. And um, it took me one day from the first first post going live to where I read something and I said, I really want to talk to that person. I want to say something. And the only thing that you could do then was post email addresses, which nobody wanted to do on their private diary. So the second night the site was live, I wrote the code for what we called notes then, which were comments. And I, it was the first time comments had been put at the bottom of a, a page of content. And I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. That worked out great. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> But uh, at the time, it was like that was what made the site social because now suddenly you could talk back and forth to each other and um, conversations would evolve in the comment thread or the note thread that we were calling it then. And um, Privacy evolved quickly after that. We um, eventually got to uh, where we have um, private, semi-private, friends-only or public content, members-only content or public content. And those were all – you know, things that users wanted. We were very similar with location, too, to what Andrew was saying. Like, we would let you do location by state and country in the U.S. or region and country in Canada or just country outside, but nothing, you know, nothing closer than that because it was scary and there were, you know, stalkers. Like Andrew right. said. That was the concern <laughs> you back You didn't then. want people showing up at your door. Yeah. That's really interesting. Lisa, what were the, the controls, like social controls and friending and following on, on LiveJournal? The controls on LiveJournal were... You could create, you know, for any post that you made on a per-post basis, you could choose, you know, public, available to anyone. But but what I loved about it is you could also choose a specific group. You could also be entirely private. You're the only person you could read it. Um, but you could also, uh, you know, LiveJournal had the concept that's, you know, sort of similar to Facebook now where you have a, groups of friends who you allow – and, you know, you're friends with them. You're part of the social community together. And on a per-post basis, you could decide who you'd share that with, an individual, a group of people. So really similar to what you see on Facebook today, um, unless they change it next week. <laughs> and that that was – I think that was huge for community building and sharing because you could still grow a community that way. It wasn't totally, you know, walled off. One of the most remarkable things is all these platforms, as early as they were, not only grew to have millions of users, there were these stories that became part of culture, became part of the world. I'm sure each of you had experiences like that. Andrew, if I start with you, I'm curious about what's a time when you found this connection between your work and realizing it was going to connect to you know what was happening in society overall? I guess the uh, most interesting one that sort of made me realize that uh, Diaryland wasn't just sort of a closed bubble, but also reached out to the world was uh, there was a literary hoax, um, an author named J.T. Leroy. J.T. Leroy is a 21-year-old writer with two books of fiction based on his experiences as the son of a truck stop prostitute. Hi, I'm J.T. Jeremiah Terminator Leroy. 
He doesn't like to show his face to the press. JT, I just thank you from the bottom of my heart. Some people think that JT Leroy might not really exist. My name's Laura Albert, and I am the writer, JT Leroy. Published, I think, three books, and then it turned out it was somebody just pretending to be this character. And they had done a lot of writing on Dyerland as well um, as a username Terminator. And uh, that was really striking to me, just that something like that, people were doing these major things like publishing books and doing a cool hoax. But also, you know, they went to, they're also sort of adding an online element to it. And it wasn't just your average sort of diary of a uh, 20-year-old in Utah or whatever a lot of the other things were. So it really connected into into what was happening in popular culture. And that's interesting because I think, Lisa, for a little while, you and I worked together uh, on LiveJournal for a couple of years. And uh, that was the first place I ever heard of an author named George R.R. R. Martin, mm-hmm. right? And he's still on LiveJournal, right? Mm-hmm. But he's never Last updated. Right. But, I mean, he hasn't finished any of the books, so he's probably not updating his LiveJournal that much either, right? He <laughs> better not be. And yeah, I'm I'm curious for you about like as these moments and you get to work both across LiveJournal and Twitter and many other sites. What what was something that jumped out to you of you realizing okay this is going to connect into the world at large and it's not just our little you know bunch of goth kids writing journals. <laughs> How do you know we were goth? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody was goth, right? Um, for me, it's again it's another personal note. Um, I had been working. For a while, for Live Journal is the only, you know, cis and men, there are only a couple of us really keeping it up going. And uh, I was burned out, just physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted, working long hours. And I got to go home for a visit, and my sister in law was there, and I was telling her, you know, how tired I was and why am I even doing this? What is this even worth? Does it even matter to people? I mean, it's just a website, you know, um, it's just tech, it doesn't have meaning in the real world. Because at at that point, it wasn't totally, you know, a given that the internet would become as ubiquitous as it is. It still seemed like frivolous. And it was having real impact on my my body. I was telling my sister-in-law, you know, the site's used by more than a million people. And that doesn't mean anything to me. It's what you can't visualize. You can't really feel a million people and how they interact with a site. And she said to me, through tears, Lisa, do you realize what this site is for me? I'm a new mom. I moved into a new community. She herself was bi and liberal, and she moved into a conservative community. And she didn't have any friends around her, and she had postpartum depression. And she made a community. It was the community back then called Hip Mamas, um, which you know was a community of moms online who found each other no matter where they lived and could talk with each other around things that were harder to do in their community where they lived. And she said without them, she doesn't, she didn't know where she would turn. She would just be depressed, you know, and um, she had a, a more fulfilling life just because the site was available to her. And that actually kept me going for years after that and, and being open to those stories about individual people and what the Internet did for them is what kept me motivated, you know, and then go, moving on to Twitter, a lot of similar stories like that. And that was it for me was sort of when I could feel on an individual level how how a person's life was made better or more full from this site. 
that was actually bigger to me than some of the news stories that happen later on. It sounds like that's still part of your motivation. Still today, definitely a huge part of my motivation. Later on at Twitter, I heard stories directly from, from women that were in the MENA region during Arab Spring and what Twitter allowed them to do and how to, they could communicate with each other around things like whether or not the street they were on was safe for them to go outside. And hearing those stories directly from these women was so powerful, it kept me going longer there. Um, so as long as people are sharing those stories with me, it, it continues to motivate me to participate in this in this thing that I still believe to be um, overall a positive influence on an individual level. Bruce, I'm curious for you, you were maybe one of the very first people to build a platform that gave millions of other people a voice. Uh, what was that that early moment that, that comes to your mind? Yeah, I can, I can define the moment easily because um, – uh, we had a user. His name was Blather. Uh, he was living in San Francisco, and he was um, uh, he was a gay man, older gay man, I think, um, middle aged at the time. And again, this is twenty years ago, and uh, he was somebody who felt disenfranchised by society and by the culture he lived in. Uh, the AIDS crisis had been, uh, you know, huge in the late eighties, and he had lost, you know a lot of his friends who were his real family. Uh, he was somebody who had been separated from his, from his family because of who and what he was uh, and, and was alone. And he found Open Diary and started posting very soon after we launched, like a, about a month or two months in, he started uh, posting. And he started with very tentative things, just kind of saying you know, what life was like for him and not, not introducing – all of the problems that he had had um, and um, the places where, you know, culture or society had, had treated him poorly. Uh, and he met a lot of people and a lot of people fell in love with him because of his style of writing and the honesty that they could feel coming through. And it really was an amazing thing to watch people who, uh, you know, in real life maybe would have ignored that person or discounted that person or minimalized them because of who and what they were, which, you know, today uh, I'd like to think culturally we're in a much better place than that. But in 1998, there was a lot of stigma. And he uh, he was one of the people who sent an email in to us um, more than once and said, you know, I was having a really difficult time um, in my life. I had lost a lot of people. I didn't have a community, and I found that here, and this site saved my life. Um, and I had more than one email conversation with him where I said, you know, I really appreciate that. Like, like what Lisa said, those are the things that still motivate me. I think, I think it's easy to forget the personal impact that the online world has on people today, good and bad, and that it can be good. It's easy to look at Twitter and look at Facebook and look at the things that are happening and how awful people are to each other and say – the world would be better off without the internet. <laughs> and I don't believe that. I think I think there's still space for there to be uh, places where people can be good to each other and understand each other and not judge people by uh, what they know of them in real life. I think that's that's the real power of what we do. And that's what keeps me going is knowing that, you know, it's there are still people out there who are disaffected for whatever reason and uh, what we do can give them a voice. 
I think that is a beautiful sentiment to wrap things up with. Um, Bruce, Andrew, Lisa, thank you all for joining us on Function. Uh, I appreciate you each taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, these days it feels like we all live in a world that social media created for us. And so it's easy to forget that somebody had to build these tools in the first place. All of us check Facebook and Instagram and Twitter every single day. But those apps that we use were shaped by the work that was done 20 years ago. People made decisions about how we were going to comment and respond to each other, how we were going to share our ideas, and it really affects the way that we see the world. And so I'm glad to give a voice to the people that made those choices and invented those tools. One, because we should give credit to creators. We should give credit to inventors. But also people can realize there were some really thoughtful choices that maybe we should revisit and start to think about again if we're going to start to fix some of the problems that have happened in the social media created world that we have now. Function is produced by Bridget Armstrong. Our associate producer is Maurice Cherry. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio for the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our engineers are Srinivas Ramamurthy and Jarrett Floyd. Our theme music was composed by Brandon McFarland. And big thanks to the entire team at Glitch. You can follow me on Twitter at Anil Dash. And of course, you can always check out Function at glitch.com slash function. So please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen. And we'll be back next week with a brand new episode.